0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Ashley Tellis, a senior associate here at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and it's a very special pleasure for me to welcome this audience uh, to the endowment uh, for the event that we are going to host this morning, uh, which is a look at Pakistan's economy and its prospects as we look into the years ahead. On this occasion, Uh, It gives me great pleasure to extend a special welcome to Dr. Abdul Hafiz Shaikh, the Pakistani Federal Minister for Finance. I have to remind you that his formal title is the Minister for Finance, Revenue, Economic Affairs, Statistics and Planning, and Development. That's a long-winded way of saying that he has many sleepless nights – given the number of issues uh, that he has to oversee uh, for the Pakistani government. We know him as an economist. He is an international economist of repute. But for those of you who have followed U.S.-Pakistan relations in the last several months, also know that he played a very critical role in healing the rupture in U.S.-Pakistan relations after the very difficult events that took place since the killing of Osama bin Laden. Along with Deputy Secretary Nides, Dr. Sheikh was pivotal in pulling together a new set of understandings that have allowed the United States and Pakistan to heal the breaches that had defined the relationship uh, in the last years. He has brought with him today a very distinguished delegation which includes the governor of the State Bank of Pakistan, the chairman of the Federal Board of Finance, several secretaries in the ministries, all of whom who are visiting us because they have come to Washington on the occasion of the bilateral conversations between the United States and Pakistan with respect to economic cooperation. So this is a very important uh, moment in the relationship for the future of economic cooperation. And we are delighted that we could welcome Dr. Sheikh to the Carnegie Endowment to speak to us on a subject that is certainly on the minds of very important constituencies in the United States. For those of you who have given some thought to Pakistan's economy, you would know that not very long ago, Pakistan was a development success story. Uh, In the immediate aftermath, of the colonial experience, Pakistan's economic achievements were held up as exemplars for many in the developing world to follow. After the Cold War, Pakistan's economic fortunes unfortunately went in a different direction. And in the last few years, Dr. Sheikh has been one of those leaders in Pakistan who has struggled mightily to bring the economy back onto a trajectory that is both positive and sustainable. Given the importance of Pakistan's economic success, first and foremost for its own people, and thereafter for the region and for bilateral relations with the United States, uh, I don't think we could have had a better individual to walk us through the assessment of where the Pakistan economy is today and where it is likely to be going. As I said, Dr. Sheikh is a professional economist. He has 30 years of experience in economic policy making. He has thrice been elected to the Pakistan Senate and he has served previously both as the Federal Minister for Privatization and Investment, a tenure that was actually marked by dramatic successes in Pakistan's privatization agenda, and he has also served as the Provincial Minister of Finance in the Sindh. Again, a tenure that was marked by very dramatic successes. But he's not just been a government servant. He actually has had a very productive career in the private sector. He was the general partner of an investment company based in New York, which oversaw a huge set of investments relating to Asia, and he worked for many years Uh, at the World Bank, and at Harvard, which sometimes seems like it is an entirely different country. Uh, He has had international assignments that have included positions in at least 20 countries. And from the point of view of the Carnegie Endowment, also happens to be the author of many publications and books. So we are particularly delighted to welcome him this morning. And without further ado, I will yield the microphone to Dr. Sheikh. Welcome. Thank
0: you so much. Well, I wish we had the, uh, a budget to hire Mr. Tellis to be our spokesperson in Pakistan, especially to, you know is there do you do any charity work <laughs> I, the <laughs> I understand you are looking for a new career, right? <laughs> okay, well, uh, let me start by thanking you, uh, sir, and uh, the Carnegie Institute for inviting me, uh, for giving me this opportunity to talk to this distinguished audience. It's a pleasure to be here in this great country, in its beautiful capital. And uh, yesterday, when I spoke to the Chamber of Commerce, they even uh, we're saying that they have organized the sun to come out for us. And knowing some of the resourcefulness of the Americans, I you know, didn't challenge them. Uh, we are uh, here uh, to have uh, a series of discussions with our counterparts in the U.S. government, the State Department, the Treasury, the Trade uh, Representative's Office, USAID, uh, OPIC, the business sector, and the multilateral institutions. Uh, It's an opportunity for us to uh, review uh, the state of the global economy, how it might impact upon us, and what are the ways that we can try to bring uh, greater prosperity and fulfill the expectations of our citizens. I think uh, Pakistan is going through an interesting phase. It's an exciting phase. And in many ways, a new Pakistan is emerging away from the headlines, away from the usual uh, quota of news that appeared to occupy the minds of certain watchers of television. Pakistan, over the last four and a half years, has seen dramatic changes, and these are historic changes. We have had the return of democracy, which for many Pakistanis – is something that they have cherished, that they fought for, and they were happy to attain, and they are determined to preserve. We've had the restoration of the Constitution, which had been suspended, and the Constitution, which was created in a magical moment when all Pakistanis came together in 1973, has been restored to its purity. The president of Pakistan, Asif Ali Zardari, voluntarily relinquished powers that other presidents had taken from the parliament and made the parliament supreme. This parliament has functioned. It's an elected parliament over the last four and a half years. It has passed landmark legislation and it has tried to perform its duties to fulfill the aspirations of those who elected them. It is a country where the courts have been operating actively, where they've been holding people to account, and where they've been interpreting the Constitution, and they have been fulfilling the mandate assigned to them. It's a country where the standing committees of the Parliament, of the Senate, and the National Assembly have been working. They have been summoning public servants, holding them responsible, asking them tough questions, the full glare of public spotlight. It's a country where the media is free to critique, to comment, to scrutinize and debate issues, and they do their job very well. We have over 80-plus television channels, and they are free, entirely free. It's a country which has had a period in politics which is characterized by an absence of vindictiveness, an absence of settling of scores, and of public discourse without fear. It's a country where we've had coalition governments, and nobody has tried to dominate others. Nobody has tried to totally prevail upon others. Nobody has tried to be supreme. The political culture has evolved in a way that people have had to make adjustments. They've had to come together. They have passed unanimous resolutions. People have tried to give and take. People have tried to compromise. People have tried to move along. They have tried to listen to each other. And that's good for Pakistan. It's also a country in which over the last four and a half years, civil society has been vibrant. It has been noisy. It has spoken out loud and clear about their preferences. And it's also a country where for the first time a democratic government's tenure will be completed and the people again will get a chance probably in the coming uh, three to four months to either accept or reject whoever they wish. And the beauty of the system, as you know since two centuries, is that everyone will have to submit to their will. So I think I come here with a sense of pride as a Pakistani that over the last four and a half years, we have made strides and above all the rule of law and the people of Pakistan who have shown a seductive attachment to their constitution and to be governed by a rule of law ultimately has brought us into the global mainstream. And I think we as Pakistanis on this score, can hold our head high. It's a time where institutions have been allowed to function. And when we look around us, in the neighborhood, in the larger region, indeed in the whole world, this makes us, I think, if not unique, at least in many ways, uh, gives us reason to be satisfied that we have obtained this cherished Uh, freedom, and I think it's something we have to try very hard to ensure that it provides the platform now to attain the kind of growth and to achieve the level of prosperity that we indeed have shown to be capable of. Let me turn now to the economy. First of all, uh, we must not forget what it was like on the economic front when this government was assigned the responsibilities in 2008-9. And I'll just recap it in a couple of minutes, especially for many of our colleagues who may not know what we inherited and how much we have travelled. Of course, we have a lot of hard work to do still. In 2008-9, when this government came into its position, the growth momentum had been lost, And the growth rate had fallen in 2008-9 to 1.7 percent, perhaps the lowest in our recent history. Second, inflation. Inflation had begun to get into second uh, double digits by 2006-7. And by 2008-9, it peaked at 25 percent, the highest in our history. The twin deficits, that of current account and fiscal deficit, had become combined perhaps the highest in our history. The stock market had lost one third of its value and was virtually shut down. The foreign exchange reserves had depleted to a level of $3 billion and were posing a serious threat of default. The value of the rupee had slipped from the mid-60s to the mid-80s over a few months and was really creating serious balance of payment problems. So this is the context, this is the background, this is the inheritance. And now here is a government coming, elected by the people who have aspirations, who want delivery, and on the other hand, You are staring at default. You are staring at serious, serious crisis. A lot of politically tough decisions had to be made. The government had to go to the IMF. A standby, standby arrangement was secured. Tough decisions like passing on the price of oil to the consumers was undertaken. Petroleum prices were deregulated. Electricity prices were enhanced and fiscal austerity was adopted and a move towards generation of tax resources was undertaken. These are not politically popular things to do, especially for a popularly elected government at a time when aspirations of the people were at their peak. Nevertheless, a macroeconomic stability source was restored, and things began to move forward. Inflation was brought down, and the crisis was averted, and it appeared like after two to three years of uh, tough times, we would get back to the growth path of the sort that Mr. Tellis talked about. I think we were approaching around 4% growth when the great floods of 2010 struck us. Somebody advised me that everybody here knows about the great floods, so don't, you know, elaborate on them too much. But I think it's important to understand how catastrophic they were. And not everyone may know about it. They covered an area larger than the size of Italy. They destroyed crops, they destroyed infrastructure, they uh, shattered people's lives, they cost us... $10 billion, according to the estimates of the World Bank and the ADB, they wiped away 2% growth of our GDP and forced us to go back to the drawing board and move monies away from infrastructure development back to rehabilitation and recovery of our citizens who were passing their nights under the stars. So this was a setback. Nevertheless, we went back, we regrouped, and we continued to try and find ways to generate private sector momentum. We tried hard to continue on the path of reforms, and I will share with you some of the things that we managed to do. So let us look now, as we are approaching the end of this term of four and a half to five years, where we stand. First, growth rate is picking up. This year, after the floods and two consecutive years of extraordinary monsoon rains, we have reached 3.7 percent. If you see that the world's growth has been about 3 percent and some of the high-charging economies, like China and India, are also slowing down now, this is, I think, a defensible growth rate. And we expect that now it will be in the 4-plus range. Second, inflation. For the first time, after many years of coordinated monetary policy action and fiscal policy austerity, we have the wholesale price index, the consumer price index, and the sensitive price index. All three are in the single digit. And this is allowing the central bank to bring the interest rates down and hopefully provide the incentives for investment to grow, an area in which we have not done so well. Third, if you look at our efforts to try and uh, increase taxes, which is an area where historically we have not done well, then over the last five years, we have more than doubled tax revenues. And in fact, over the last two years, when we made serious efforts to uh, mobilize tax resources, we have done extraordinarily well and the year that just ended tax revenues increased by 21 22 percent the highest perhaps in our history in a single year and we added 350 billion extra rupees in taxes and the tax to gdp ratio within a single year was enhanced by half a percentage point of the gdp turning to fiscal austerity It is an area we have tried hard in spite of the expenditures associated with the difficulties in the neighbourhood, with the demands for defending our borders and being part of an international coalition to fight extremism. We have committed resources for our security, for payment of debts and their servicing of debts taken over the entire history of Pakistan and for running the civilian government. So if you add up all this, the total expenditure growth has been confined merely to 6% per annum in nominal terms. And if you allow for an inflation of 11 to 12% per year, then you are talking of a real decline in total expenditures of the government by 5 to 6% every year. This in spite of the three items I mentioned and if you look at civilian government alone then last year our total expenditures were 220 billion and this year they are 227 billion so virtually zero growth in the running of civilian government in spite of inflation and in spite of pressures for salary increases in the uh, government employees so i think we have done uh, quite well on that front and It's a tough thing to say no to powerful people from morning to night, but that's what I have to do. And I think that's why I feel sometimes like settling here and just listening to Mr. Tellis talk about me. (laughs) I'll probably never return to Pakistan. And so now if we turn, this has obviously meant uh, it's not been easy. Because when we went for tax collection, we had to eliminate exemptions in sales taxes of powerful groups like textile and carpets and surgical equipments and sports and leather and trying to, you know, eliminate uh, exemptions for fertilizer and pesticides and tractors and other kind of things. So these are very strong groups. But we went ahead and did these things. And I think the results have begun to show. And this year we would like to focus on expanding the base of income taxpayers. And that's something we can talk in the Q&A. When you go through a painful transition, obviously there are people who are disadvantaged, who are forgotten, and we decided to reach out to them. And as Mr. Tellis said, in the past this country, our country, has experienced periods of high growth. But one of the interesting features of these periods of high growth is that they have not been characterized by everyone participating in it. And so that sense of exclusion, that sense of having been left out, has been costly. In fact, it contributed towards the loss of a part of our country. So we have learned from that. And this government is committed to a regionally balanced growth. And this is manifested in... At least two ways, three ways. First, historically, Pakistan has been accused correctly of not investing enough in social sector for human development. So what we did is we came together with the provinces and we decided to alter the way they are funded. And instead of the central government in Islamabad keeping most of the money, as it used to be in the past, where the formula for sharing was 50-50 of the entire divisible pool, we altered the formula. And now the provinces, states in the U.S. terminology, get, instead of 50, they get 70%. So 5,000 billion rupees have been given to the provinces during the tenure of this government. And an extra 1,000 billion have been given solely because of the adjustment in this formula so what it means is that a uh, region like baluchistan which we all care about it used to get a budget of about 40 billion plus and with the stroke of a pen next year it received 110 billion now if these monies are spent wisely and they are why are we doing this Because the things that matter to people, including those in this room, drinking water, and education, and health, and maternity care, and municipal services, and law and order, the things that affect the quality of life of the people, they are in the hands of the provinces. They are within the domain of the provinces. So we are empowering them with more authority, and we are enabling them with more resources. And this is a fundamental shift which will fundamentally, I think, transform the the, the lives of ordinary citizens. Number one. Number two. We looked at our development program and we said that we must focus large chunks of development expenditures into the areas that have been left behind. So new monies were allocated to Gilgit-Baltistan, to the federally administered tribal areas, already talked about Balochistan, and a network of roads and of hospitals and colleges and other activities have been undertaken. These are the forgotten people of Pakistan. But now they are being brought into the mainstream. Somebody is reaching out to them. Somebody is saying, you have to benefit from growth. We all have to benefit. And this is, I think, again, an extraordinarily exciting period of Pakistan because of this. The third feature is about the poor, the disadvantage, which everyone talks about, but very few people have chosen to do anything about. In this government, we sat together and we said, what can we learn from international experience? from places like the World Bank and Asian Development Bank and USAID and DFID and places like Carnegie and Brookings and others. What what are the global uh, knowledge institutions telling us about how to help those who are not at the moment in a position to help themselves? So we thought we will have a social safety net program, which is targeted, which is based on learning from best practices and international experience. And we undertook a poverty survey. We identified the poorest of the poor. We identified those who were really in need. And we developed a technology that did not involve intermediaries, but rather relied upon ATM cards and biometric ways of identifying people. And we allocated, instead of a combination of all sorts of subsidies, cash transfers. And so this program, named after uh, the former Prime Minister, Shahid Benazir Bhutto, who did so much for the women of Pakistan, is targeting and is transferring cash to 3 million households in Pakistan. And one of the unique features of this program is that these are households headed by women, and the money goes straight into the hands of women so on the one hand we are reaching out uh, with the social safety net that is based on international experience modern technologies relatively free of corruption and on the other hand it's a vehicle and an instrument for elevating the status of women giving them independence of a sort and raising their status in society and reducing their dependence upon others and i think This is a program that we are proud of and we would encourage you to look into it and if you think there are ways it can be improved, we would be happy to welcome suggestions. Now the other point that I would like to mention is we have made special efforts. We believe that if there is something we have learned, one of the things we have learned from international experiences, you cannot operate and do well if the region as a whole is not doing well. And so what we are doing is trying to be a catalyst, trying to play our part in transforming the dynamics of our region. And an element of that is that we must reach out to the private sector of the region. So with the help of the United States, and I should acknowledge their role, we we concluded a transit trade agreement with Afghanistan. This will allow Afghanistan economy to flourish, to reduce their cost of doing business, promote our trade links with them, and also open up South Asia to Central Asia. So this is, I think, a historic uh, new treaty that was signed and is beginning to really bring the two countries together. At the same time, and perhaps even more importantly for the long term, we are putting aside ancient rivalries and reaching out to India. And we have decided to give them the MFN status. We have opened up trade for thousands of new products. And the two countries have liberalized their visa regime so that businessmen can freely interact with each other. And this, I think, is another transformational aspect of the region where we have played, tried to play our own part. At the same time, we have been active in trying not to rely upon external assistance, but to try and seek an opportunity for our businesses to play their part and to operate and to seek for them a level-playing field. And we have managed to get from the European Union uh, some concessions, and we also want to appreciate the U.S.'s role and those of Prime Minister Cameron and Chancellor Merkel in making that possible. And that will enhance our exports. And I'd like to share with you that two years back, our exports went up by 28% in a single year at a time when the world was facing a global contraction. And last year, we managed, in spite of the difficulties, to preserve that level. And our hope is that, in spite of the adverse global environment, on the uh, growth side, that our businesses, if given an opportunity, can try to preserve at least those level of exports. At the same time, we think that Pakistan is uh, living outside Pakistan, are an important asset, both in terms of contributing towards their host countries' economies and also being a source of remittance flow into Pakistan. So we went out and tried to give them incentives so that these remittances can flow through official channels and contribute towards cushioning the blows that one might get from the balance of payment side. And as a result of these efforts, these numbers have gone up from roughly $6 billion a year in 2008-09 to approaching $13-plus plus billion a year now. And they have been a good source of display of confidence in the Pakistani economy, as well as a source of cushion on the foreign exchange account. Now, the final point on uh, economic items that I have listed is we have tried to create an environment during this time where economic institutions are allowed to function. And as you know, um, the new literature on development suggests that the way to long-term growth is for institutions to be allowed to flourish. And so the central bank governor is here, Mr. Yasin Anwar. He can confirm to you that we have an independent central bank. It's a high-quality regulator, and it operates monetary policy without intervention from the finance ministry as it used to be in the past. We have a Securities and Exchange Commission headed by top-notch professional and operates it according to its own board, independently. We have the Chairman of the Federal Board of Revenue, who runs the IRS of Pakistan, and he, as Revenue Minister, reports to me, but we grant him all the autonomy to operate his institution without political intervention. We have a competition commission of Pakistan to ensure the avoidance of monopoly practices and exploitation of consumers headed by a very dynamic young woman, and she operates without any influence or intervention. We have the national regulatory authorities for electricity and telecommunications and gas and others, and they operate free of the intervention from the ministries even though some ministers would like to interfere in their affairs. But we resist them. So I think this is a very interesting uh, aspect of the prevalence of rule of law, of respecting each other's mandate, of allowing institutions to function. And uh, we have made important changes in the capital markets to make them function better, and we have introduced capital gains tax to go after some of the richest people of our country. And one of the results of that is, and something that many people do not know, is that our capital market, the Karachi Stock Exchange, is the best-performing capital market, best-performing stock market in the entire world this year. Um, I think I have given you a good overview of Where we were, where we are, where should we be headed in the future? Let me say that. Uh, First of all, we have to try and retain our macro-stability, because any efforts to try and share prosperity can only happen if you have the platform. And as I said, our monetary policy, our fiscal policy, our private sector promotion policy, they're all geared up for this preservation of stability bringing down – continuing to bring down inflation because it's a regressive tax that hurts the poor the most. And second, to have a regional balance so everyone feels included in the growth. Third, continue with safety nets but keeping them sustainable and within bounds and focusing on sharpening the targetedness of the subsidies. We want to continue to be fiscally austere, focus on private sector promotion, focus on regional dynamics in the energy sector, try and expand capacity, improve efficiency, and focus on alternate energies such as hydropower and coal, which has remained unexploited in our country. Of course, I do not want to leave you with the impression that everything is rosy and lose my credibility in the process. We do have challenges, of course. They are well known to many. We have not done such a great job in managing our electricity sector. And some of the inefficiencies of that sector have continued to haunt us, be a drag on our growth. But we have a new very dynamic Secretary of Water and Power, Nargis Sethi, who is here, and you can ask her. All the difficult questions will be directed to her. And I think she's really shaking up the sector and going after people who have not been paying their bills or those uh, distribution companies in the government sector who have not done so well in the past. So I believe I'm beginning to feel more optimistic that some of these problems in the electricity sector will soon be behind us. Of course, our energy mix, input mix, has changed, and there is no solution that small and open economies have in dealing with high increase in the prices of oil. So we have to endure it. But we are switching towards alternate mechanisms of producing electricity, but those results will not materialize for a few years. So in the meantime, we have to be smart in using our existing capacity In ensuring that we distribute things, electricity, properly and in pricing it correctly. We also uh, could do a better job in managing our public sector corporations. And here, I think, um, is a challenge that in the coming term we have to meet more aggressively. We made changes, we have brought distinguished people from the private sector onto the boards of these corporations, many of which we privatised anyway, so I do not want to exaggerate this problem beyond that of the electricity sector. But in some of the sectors like steel and airline and uh, uh, railways, we need to get our act together better because although their fiscal impact is not so huge, they're a continuing source of bad publicity for the government. And I think we can do better. And uh, let me turn now to the Pakistan-U.S. relationship for, and make a couple comments on that. The Pakistan-U.S. relationship is in its importance for us second to no other relationship. Uh, the U.S. Uh, has been a, perhaps historically the largest uh, participant in our economy. Uh, out of the 800-plus corporations that operate in Pakistan, the majority are those of the U.S. And they have been making really good rates of return and keeping it as a secret. So I think <laughs> I want to share it with you. Uh, they have uh, been thriving uh, and I'm happy for them. I'd like more of their brothers and sisters to join them. Uh, second, uh, as far as our exports and imports are concerned, the U.S. is our single uh, largest partner. The trade relationship uh, accounts for something like $5 billion plus a year, and it's a two-way relationship. We export garments and textiles and uh, surgical equipments and stuff like that. And the U.S. sends us machinery and Boeings and stuff like that, General Electric. And so it's a, it's a relationship we need to build on. And at the government level, um, we have a strong relationship on the political side and the military side on the economic side, we feel that the economic side, the potential, has only just now begun to be realized. And we need to work really hard. We've been meeting people at OPIC, and at uh, the Trade Representative's Office, and at the State Department, and the Treasury, and above all, most importantly, with private sector businesses, because governments can go only so far, and I think they are going I'm um, trying to go as far as they can to provide incentives, and we appreciate the support we get from the U.S. government um, in terms of promoting uh, projects in the energy sector, rehabilitation of our power plants, building of uh, infrastructure in the areas affected by the uh, security situation, and and possible collaboration and flagship projects like the Daimir Bhasha Dam. So we do appreciate that. At the same time, what we want to engage and what we want the governments to do is to provide incentives for their businesses so that the relationship can deepen. And it's this area of providing financing for export, for providing insurance, for companies to go in for providing seed capital, for providing capital uh, to businesses so that the Americans can benefit from the relationship in a commercial way and at the same time contribute towards a more lasting basis for permanent relationships that are not uh, transitory but are based on long-term solid foundations. So... Let me end now by again thanking you. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to the Qs and As. I have people who will respond to all the tough questions. I will take the easy ones. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to thank uh,
1: Dr. Sheikh for providing a very transparent uh, presentation of where he sees the Pakistan economy without the triumphalism. And that's, I think, extremely useful to bring us up to speed. I'm also grateful that he focused on the issues of political economy rather than just simply the economics, because if you don't understand the issues of political economy, the issues of economics kind of hang out there in the air. Uh, My job at this point is simply to be a traffic cop and recognize people who may want to ask the minister questions. I would just urge you to identify yourself when you're recognized. And Keep your questions or comments pointed and short because we have just about 15 minutes before the minister has to leave. Taisy. Schaefer from yes. Brookings and... Sorry,
0: Taisy Schaefer from Brookings and McLarty Associates. Uh, Mr. Minister, as always, your presentation was a, uh, an eloquent tool de force. Um, I wanted to ask you a more future-oriented question. Uh, there's a lot of general talk about the importance of the wired world and the unwired world of telecommunications and the social media for the future of the economy. I wonder if your thinking about where Pakistan needs to go uh, has factored this in. I'm not just thinking about the infrastructure, but also the regulatory structure, uh, the openness and availability of these media for new emerging small businesses to uh, break into a more profitable world? Should I respond to Okay, well, uh, as always, your questions are profound and cover so much ground that they can't be answered, you know, uh, in a simple and short and sweet way. So I think that... Um, I'll respond to it quickly in, uh, from uh, two, three different aspects. First, the telecom sector itself and the IT sector. It's one of the most liberalized sectors in Pakistan. We were one of the first countries to privatize our telecom sector, to eliminate barriers to entry for others to come in. And as you know, We have Norwegian companies operating, UAE companies operating. Uh, We have uh, investors from China and all over the place. So it is one of the uh, countries which has shown a real, I think, uh, willingness to open the telecom space to international participants. We have created a regulatory body which is separate from the ministry. So the ministry does policymaking, the uh, PTA, Pakistan Telecom Authority, does the regulation, the rules for you know, entry and exit, for tariff setting, and so on. And we have the private sector, which operates uh, in the service provision. We are now going for another uh, round of auction of 3G Spectrum in January So this represents an opportunity, I think, for everyone, including U.S. uh, players, to come in. So the overall thrust for us is to try and keep it that way, keep it open. Uh, There are aspects of it where we can improve upon and learn from uh, international experience, including enhancing the capacity of the telecom regulatory authority. And I think... uh, I hope I have answered your question. Uh, If there was something,
2: okay, yeah,
0: Yeah. okay. I wanted to say that you know we have been experimenting a lot in terms of using uh, modern technology. As I said, not just for the income transfer program, but also within the national data registration authority as well as the FBR. And I think uh, my colleague, uh, Learshad Hakim, who was the head of the National Data Registration Authority and is now the chairman of FBR, would like to give uh, a we comment. Are
2: using this word. Could you Could you catch me? you can use my? There's an opportunity there. Uh, we are totally wide in terms of our telecom. We have an outreach all through the country. And we are using that outreach to help small businesses grow. And I'll give you an example. We are running one of the biggest financial inclusion programs in the world, which is the Benzir Income Support Program. And we have one of the most successful branchless banking initiatives uh, globally. The Financial Times, uh, the Governor will tell us, hails this as the most successful there. What has happened is that we have used this wired arena to allow banks to set up branchless networks. And, you know, the profits for banks and other pe- others are in, in the in the number of transactions they can carry out. So our policy has been to encourage to lower the cost of transactions using the technology. And and one of our first initiatives has been the branchless banking initiatives, where a corner shop can become a limited band-aid bank. We have 30,000 of those agents now. Uh, They carry out transactions for financial inclusion, payment to the poorest of the poor. As well as now they are going into transactions for remittances and other things, I'm sure in near future that we will have small insurance product, the agriculture insurance, and others coming in. So we have we are using this wide environment quite well in Pakistan, and it suits us.
1: Can I ask a follow up to that question? Uh, when you talked about the direct cash transfers as being now the uh, social security net mechanism, how? does that actually get implemented in practice? Does it
2: go through the branchless bank? or um, Could you give us some sense of how that works? I'll I'll tell you how it works. The way it works is that (coughs) in Adra, we have the largest multi-biometric database in the world, Hmm. which means that against your name, we have a number which is unique to you, birth to death. And uh, against that number, we have your biometric identity, which is your fingerprints and your photograph. Uh, what we do is that once we identify a beneficiary through through a poverty survey regressed into a model, uh, into a mathematical model, we then need to issue you a card. Uh, we have found that a Mac Stripe card is one of the best ways of uh, transferring, one of the cheapest way of transferring. Now, this card is only given to you once we biometrically identify you. And at the same time, we enable you to open a a virtual bank account to be open against you. That virtual bank account is now mapped into this card, and and which enables these women to go to any of the 30,000 corner shops. They don't need to go into a bank or to an ATM machine and get that payment. So it's the the competitive advantage we get with having uh, 90 million biometric identities in our database. And those biometric identities regressed into a poverty scorecard. Uh, And which is a huge market. I mean, the 90 million small money is is a big market. Absolutely. Okay, well, I
0: hope that. See, I told you the people with me are smarter than me. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Oh, sure, sure.
0: Okay, all right. Good
3: idea. Now, just to echo what has already been said, there are 30,000 agents. It's called the bank led model. We initiated this a couple of years back with. Telenor and other uh, telecom companies with banks, and they are strictly compliant with anti-money laundering regulations and terrorist financing. So these are small transfers that allows the unbanked sector to capture and get into the banking sector. There are only 25 million adult accounts in Pakistan, 180 million people, but the adult population cannot afford, some of these rural people cannot afford to open a bank account. So this allows them to enter the financial net, transfer these small amounts of money to their villages instantaneously through an agent network. Branches bank, of banks are only about 13,000, so it's an exponential increase that we've had and continue to increase. And CGAP, World Bank, and the Financial Times on November 6th recognized us in the newspapers worldwide as a leading nation <coughs> in the field. And other models are coming to us to replicate our model. We have this called the bank-led model. It's all compliant with anti-money laundering schemes as well. And that captures the unbanked sector and helps them money, the money transfer to their villages.
0: Thank you.
1: Marvin
4: Marvin Weinbaum, Middle East Institute. Uh, Mr. Minister, uh, what is your response to yesterday's IMF report, which I don't think it's any, I'm overstating it by saying it, comes out with a far more negative view of the economy. It, as expected, focuses on, energy and tax policy. It talks about uh, the declining foreign currency reserves. Uh, It points out that your target of 4.5%, I believe it was, is likely to come in at 3.4% foreign investment decline in the rupee value, uh, so on. Uh, How do you respond to some of these these observations or these reports, uh, which obviously uh, throw the economy in a somewhat different light.
0: Thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, your comment. I feel like I'm back in Pakistan in the parliament, and you are the leader (laughs) of the opposition. Uh, What, some Pakistani handed this information out to you? Uh, Well, first of all, you know, I want to say that uh, we have... uh, the greatest regard for the IMF, and uh, we value our relationship with them. Uh, They have been at the forefront of trying to support us and fulfill the mandate given to them by the world uh, at a time when we were in a crisis, and we appreciate that. Uh, We are always in uh, continuing dialogue with them. The report that you are quoting is a report called Post-Program Monitoring Report. It uh, was done uh, jointly and with full collaboration of the government. The items that you mentioned are not different from the ones that I mentioned as well. Is the uh, investment-to-GDP ratio low in Pakistan? Yes. Uh, Do we need to do a better job, even better job, in mobilizing taxes? Yes. Do we need to function towards uh, greater provision of electricity? Yes. Uh, Do we need to try and ensure that our fiscal situation is better? Yes. So I would not, uh, you know, Uh, try to manufacture a disagreement between the IMF's view and our view. Yes, we can uh, disagree on some of the um, uh, slight variations that we may have about the forecasts of the future. They may think that our economy will grow by 3.5 percent this year. We may think it will grow by 4 percent plus. We are here. Monday, Tuesday, we will sit and talk to them and maybe narrow these gaps, which is the purpose of technical people to do. Uh, So I think that, uh, by and large, uh, their uh, assessment is uh, their own point of view. We can have uh, our own point of view on these. That's why we are here. We will talk, uh, sit and talk to each other, as we always do, and try and, you know, maybe uh, narrow the gaps wherever they may be at the same time. And the point I have tried to make is that uh, some of the issues or some of the numbers represent historical uh, levels, which we have tried to correct and we are making progress on so if the tax to gdp ratio of pakistan has always 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 been low and we have in the last year as i mentioned made a historic leap in that and within one year increased it by tax uh, by half a percent of the gdp well that's a that's a path we need to continue on but i would not sit here and lose my credibility by saying that the tax to gdp ratio is Uh, high enough for us to be satisfied. I can only talk about the incremental effort that we are making towards making it reach a point where we, I think, um, can be satisfied. Similarly with uh, investments. Uh, Let me say that the investment to GDP ratio is low, lower than what we would like. But two things I would like this, you know, distinguished audience to also appreciate. First... We are in a difficult neighborhood. We are a, a state that is facing uh, serious issues on our borders. We do have uh, a large number of Afghan refugees that we have been hospitable to. We do have uh, to deal with extremism and we do suffer from a negative perception. And that is why what's important in our bilateral bilateral dialogue, also with the U.S. and our friends here, that just as we are appreciative of the positive contributions they are making in our countries, our role, our difficulties, the cost that we are bearing uh, both in terms of real impacts on our economy as well as the perceptions, they have to be altered through a dialogue by our friends here with those who fashion opinions, who try to you know, project us in one way or the other. So I think this is one point, that yes, we do suffer from negative perception in the eyes of certain types of investors. The second point is, Uh, that look at what sort of investment regime we have in Pakistan. The investment regime in Pakistan is more liberal, it's more open, it's more welcoming than perhaps any regime in the whole world. And I have had the opportunity to work in two dozen countries. I think the Pakistani investment regime is second to none. We welcome foreigners in all sectors. We allow them to have 1 percent equity or 100 percent equity. We do not require them to have local partners. We do not put any barriers to their imports or movements of capital or dividends or repatriation of profits or royalties. And in some sectors, like energy, there are guaranteed rates of return in dollar terms. And so I think, what can we do? We can try and have a regime that's investor-friendly. And we can try and facilitate. And that's what we do. But we cannot go around and, you know, personally explain to everyone what high returns the investors are making. And as I said, and perhaps this was not uh, known to people, that the rate of return from the Pakistani stock market has been 35 to 40% this year. And, uh, sir, your point about, you know, the depreciation of the currency, well, in the last year, the depreciation of our, our currency has been less than the depreciation in the currencies of most of our neighbors. So I think that it is not a unique feature, reflecting a particular characteristic or weakness of <coughs> Pakistan, but is reflective of global trends. So I think uh, we respect what the IMF is saying, and, you know, uh, it's nothing uh, new there. And if you would talk to the uh, the uh, IMF uh, representatives, they would tell you that also. Yeah, sure. Yes, ma'am.
5: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Minister, it's always a pleasure to hear you speak. And uh, as I am a member of parliament in Pakistan, we've had an opportunity to watch you work diligently for the past two years and hope that your policies are the policies that will take Pakistan forward. But I would like to ask about the proverbial elephant in the room, if not the country, which is elections, what is it about these policies that will carry them through the election, perhaps with a change of government? And if these policies are sound enough to carry us through, can you please enumerate those elements that will ensure it? Because time and time again, we've seen in Pakistan, things are great a year before the election. After the election, we have a major setback. So how can we cushion ourselves uh, beyond the 2013 election? Thank you.
0: Yes, uh, thank you, Tonya. And I'd like to acknowledge Tonya Aziz. She's one of the parliamentarians uh, and uh, has uh, really uh, contributed a great deal in the discourse within the parliament. And let me say the following, that... Uh, Elections are uh, you know, funny business, and I definitely do not want to be in any forecasting mode, obviously. Um, if you uh, think about what is it that the people want, as I mentioned, uh, people of Pakistan have been at the center of all policies that have been uh, fashioned by this government. If you look at our agriculture pricing policies, and I want to mention it, because food security, I was in Tokyo for the bank fund meetings there, was a big item on the minds of many, many people. And here we have in Pakistan a situation where we have gone from importers of wheat to an exporter of wheat and an exporter of sugar and agricultural products. So we have uh, followed policies to increase the supply of agricultural production, and that has meant a great deal of prosperity in the countryside, a point that is under-acknowledged. Similarly, um, people are going to see that we have invested a great deal in bringing out those people who were left behind in the past. We have made a special effort to reach out to them and they are the citizens of Pakistan as well. Similarly, on social safety nets and the women of Pakistan, we feel that we have made an extra effort to reach out to them. Uh, Similarly, we feel that we have transferred massive amounts of resources to the provinces, even in provinces that are not governed by us, which are in the opposition. But the people of Pakistan know that we have tried to remedy these historical grievances. <clears throat> and uh, I think uh, people will see that who has tried harder. And this is something uh, that we go back and everybody has to make their case. One of the things that you would have noticed is that the in the by-elections, there have been many, many by-elections, even in states where this government is in the opposition and not in the ruling coalition. And if you look at that, who has won most of the by-elections? I don't want to, you know, sound uh, self-promotional, but most of the by-elections have been won by this government or this coalition. So I think time will tell. The important thing is that we respect the will of the people. You are absolutely right that Pakistan has suffered in the past from political transitions which have not been smooth which have been costly, because they've often involved disruption. They've often involved people coming out on the streets to dislodge entrenched governments who would otherwise not leave. And I think this is something which should be a source of pride to us, that we're heading towards an election which is historic, first of its kind, and I think myth-shattering, and will bring a sense of power the people of Pakistan, because they will make the judgment and they will make the call, and I think uh, that hopefully will lead to a smooth transition, and then I think the policies can either be continued or be altered, but in a smooth and uh, correct way. Thank you.
1: Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Either one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, either either microphone. <laughs>
5: Uh, Humay does Express News. Um, uh, Finance Minister, you, we, I want to follow from uh, Dr. Weinbaum's question. Uh, in the IMF report, again, it
1: mentioned uh, the declining foreign reserves. How concerned and what steps are you taking to rectify that? And secondly, in the report itself, and this has come up before, about the
5: massive lending to the government by the state bank or from private banks, and you've spoken about this in the past, about how this, uh, how this hinders investment. So is there anything being done to control that lending as well?
2: Thank
0: yeah. you. Again, I think those are good points. I've already spoken a lot about uh, you know uh, making uh, a response to some of the comments. As I said, in my situation, I cannot be in uh, public and keep talking endlessly about, you know, reacting to a very important partner's comments. They have to be nuanced. And uh, I have acknowledged some of the areas which have been uh, identified by them as uh, meaningful. And I think uh, where we disagree on some of the nuances or some of the, uh, you know, forecasts, I have stated those. Your point about the debt is a very important one. Again, I think there's a lot of myth-making in this area. The uh, Pakistani uh, law is a Fiscal Responsibility Act in Pakistan which says that you cannot have the debt-to-GDP ratio go beyond 60% by June 2013. Okay? If you see the debt-to-GDP numbers the correct way to look at the debt figures is not to say what was the amount of borrowing two years back versus what it was 25 years back without adjusting for inflation or anything like that. But the correct way to look at it is is to see debt as a ratio of your income, the GDP. That ratio has remained roughly unchanged in the last five years between in the late 50s okay so it's always between 58 to 59% 57 to 59 60% so that is uh, unaltered yes the domestic borrowing has gone up as a ratio but it's also offset by the foreign borrowing having been brought down so people who sometimes you know raise a legitimate issue that uh, Government has borrowed more from banks. Do not also add to that that they have repaid a lot of the foreign loans in order to bring that ratio down. So, if you said both parts of the statement, if you made both parts of the statement, then you would realize that the debt to GDP ratio is offset by, but the mix has altered a bit. It doesn't
1: investment.
0: That's the question. Well, if the government borrows a lot, then it crowds out uh, private sector, and it's a source of concern, and it should be a source of concern. But, and that is exactly why the macro policy has to be to be fiscally austere. Why do we want to be fiscally austere? and so no to everybody. Why do we want to control our expenditures precisely so that we don't have to borrow more? Precisely so that there is more left for private sector to undertake investments. And I think, as I said, that after a lot of effort, because we have been able to restrain ourselves fiscally, the uh, central bank has been able to bring the interest rates down. And as a result, um, the private sector will be able to borrow more. So you are absolutely right in your worry. And I share that worry also, and that's why we are taking the policies that uh, economically are the right ones.
1: I'll take one last question because I do have to let the minister go on to real business. But I'll give the phone to you.
5: Thank you. Madia um, Afsal, I'm an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. Um, so, my question is uh, about um, the education sector. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, investment in the education sector that the government has made. Um, as we know, there's a gender gap in education in Pakistan. It's one of the sectors that has lagged behind. And you know, both, obviously, the quantity and sort of average levels of education uh, are an issue, as well as sort of the quality of the curriculum, uh, especially in public schools, government schools. Um, So I was wondering if you could speak to some of the signature policies of the government um, in the education sector.
0: Yeah. Okay, thank you, ma'am. That's an important question, and I think uh, as I admitted uh, earlier on, we as a country have not done such a good job of uh, investing in education and giving skills and uh, adopting the right type of human development policies. Now, Education is a provincial subject, according to our constitution, right, as it should be. What can the federal government or the Ministry of Finance do? We can give more money as a start, right? So, as I said, we have given, just by adjusting the National Finance Commission formula, 1,000 billion extra rupees in the last two years. Why? Because we would like it to go into education. And that's why citizens of Pakistan, whichever state we belong to, we have to ensure that they allocate the funds for education. But I cannot dictate it to them. The second point is that we have passed a universal education uh, law, which has been approved by the Council of Common Interests, which is our highest decision-making body, which has the prime minister and all the chief ministers of the provinces which makes it compulsory for all to be educated. So that is there, and that has been their co-signatories to it. Third point I want to make is, even though the uh, subject has been passed on to the provinces, the federal government continues to support uh, human development activities like all the higher education activities, the Higher Education Commission with all the universities, it has, and for the scholarships overseas, and for building of new campuses, and for recruitment of new professors all over Pakistan, this remains under the federal government. And we are continuing to you know give it uh, funds, even though education has been passed on. Similarly, there are projects like the National Commission for Human Development, National Education Foundation, and so on. Again, while they have been passed on to the province, the federal government has chosen, because of the importance of the subject, to continue to fund them. And so I think while the funding side is being looked after, and we, in our international borrowing also, it occupies a significant portion in our discussions with the U.S. in allocation of the uh, you know, external assistance, it, you know, we try to put it on the forefront. And what's important really is to try and get private sector to participate in the service delivery as much as possible so that these resources have a higher bang for the buck. And I think that the efficiency of public investment is uh, closer to what you and I may like it to be. Well, on that note, I want to thank the minister
1: uh, graciously for coming here this morning and for giving us the time. I look forward to welcoming you again any time you choose to come to Washington.
0: Thank you, and sir. I want
1: to wish you all the best for the remainder of your meetings, okay. both to you and to the members of your team. Uh, all the very best, and thank you very much for coming here this morning.